the growth of the Pacific region also comes with a repositioning of the world's superpowers. And of course, nature and the military abhors a vacuum. And who moved to fill this vacuum but the Chinese? Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, Simon Winchester looks at what's behind a simmering conflict of national interests in the Pacific. Guides from Slovenia recommend visiting the spa town of Lashko in time for their summer festival. The festival of flowers and beer. You could toast with friendly locals. You could maybe even polka. And Eric Weiner tells us why an annual road trip to Canada is part of his family's summer plans. You know, you cross that border, as I do every year, and your blood pressure drops. And it's not the scenery, per se, which is, of course, beautiful. It's the people. Conflicts in the Pacific, summer in Slovenia, and just what is it that makes our Canadian neighbors so darn appealing? It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. As the Mediterranean shaped the classical world, you could say the Pacific is poised to shape ours. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, best-selling author Simon Winchester looks at what's contributing to a collision of cultures in the Pacific. China's navy has been challenging its neighbors, and some fear this could lead to a showdown with the United States over who's the greatest superpower. And yet, trade routes between the East and West are getting busier and busier. Chances are you've never given much thought to a summer vacation in Slovenia. Later in the hour, we'll find out why one of Europe's smaller and lesser-known countries is a perfect destination for travelers seeking a warm welcome and a relaxing getaway. If you've ever accidentally walked into a tree and said, sorry, you just might be Canadian. Joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves, NPR correspondent Eric Weiner tells us what he's discovered about Canadians that keeps him taking his family back to visit their country year after year. Eric, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. So, Eric, you've traveled all over the world, and each year you go back to Canada. What's with it uh, with Canada and you? I just love Canada. I know some people consider it boring, and it's not quote-unquote exotic, but, you know, you cross that border as I do every year, and your blood pressure drops. And it's not the scenery, per se, which is, of course, beautiful. It's the people. Canadians are nice. In fact, they are to niceness what Saudi Arabia is to oil. They are just awash in it. And, you know, they they will deny it. If you ask a Canadian, they say, oh, that's a cliche. We're not really that nice. But just try this. Next time you're with Canadian friends, tell them this joke. How do you get 50 Canadians to leave a swimming pool? How? You make an announcement. Will all the Canadians please leave the pool? <laughs> yeah. And see, <laughs> Americans don't find that funny, but Canadians <laughs> find this really funny because they recognize themselves. They're kind of obedient and nice. And I think it's actually something worth emulating ourselves. It's charming. I think we could learn something from them. Yes. You can actually hear it sometimes in, in their choice of words. They've got certain what you call hedge words. Right. They don't, and, and someone's actually done a study of this. They've looked at the words they use, and they will not be quite as definitive in their speech as Americans. They will say, you know, could have, would, should, probably, those sort of words. And, you know, is it a fear of causing offense, or is it politeness? I'm not sure, but they, mm -hmm. they are polite, and I think that's an underappreciated art. And they are humble. There was an incident, unfortunate incident, a number of years ago that you may recall at the Parliament building in Ottawa where people were killed. There was a gunman, and the sergeant of arms came to the rescue. He shot at the attacker, and he was lauded in the Canadian press not only for his heroism, 
but for his humility. Hmm. I thought that was very striking. You heard about what a humble man he was. And I thought, well, we wouldn't quite say that on this side of the border. So there's a sort of two elements, I think, of Canadian niceness. One is this politeness, and the other is this humility. It's almost oxymoronic. They take great pride in their humility. (laughs) Exactly. They do. It's It's a very Canadian thing to do. Would it have something to do with sparse sparsity in population and the harsh environment, uh, I, and they had to yeah, survive one, by one, working together? That that's one Canadian friend of mine suggested that you know he's from Montreal. He's like he said to me basically, look, the winters are harsh. You go back a hundred years, they were even harsher because you know you had less indoor heating and that sort of thing. And you had to look out for one another, right? Yeah. I mean, you you couldn't be a jerk because other people would die. So that sort of Perhaps it's just a theory, but why not? That that sort of cultivated this niceness. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Eric Weiner, and Eric's uh, the author of The Geography of Bliss. His new book is The Geography of Genius. Eric, when you travel, do you find that you tend to be a cultural chameleon, and uh, if you're in an aggressive culture, you would be more aggressive, and when you're in, like you said, when you go across the border into Canada, your pulse hmm. goes down? Yeah. Now, that's a good question. I think there's something to that. I think... You know, if you've ever traveled to England and uh, unconsciously developed a, a bad English accent, um, right. you, you know what I mean, you know, or you travel to Paris and develop a slight attitude problem, um, right? <laughs> when, when I'm in so, Japan, I bow when I leave a room, you know, it's just, yeah, uh, and you say, yeah, excuse me, you excuse just, me your all whole, the time. Your whole body language, I think, changes in a way. I know when I lived in Japan for a number of years and when I would speak Japanese, my body would be in one way and I spoke English, it would be in another way. Yeah. It almost feels like you're being a character of your host culture, but it's really not. It's a genuine respect for and attitude thing that you want to be, you know, become a temporary local. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I hadn't thought about this before, but I think you're right. I think I do become a bit nicer when I cross the border. So yes. And I I think I do become nicer. And then when I cross the border south into Vermont, I become a bit of a jerk again, I suppose. (laughs) But I, you know, in Canadians, again, they, I I can hear already some Canadians will be listening to this and say, oh, we're, we're not really like that. But, Mm. but if you push them a bit, they'll admit that they are like that. And, and I think they're, they're trying to you know, especially with their new uh, their new prime minister, Justin Trudeau, they're trying to sort of flex their muscle or at least their charm mm-hmm. on the world stage. And they want to be known as just more than just Americans, smaller, nicer cousins to the north. Um, but I say, what's wrong with being nice? I mean, come on, we could all, Amer- as a- Americans, and I say that residents of the United States, uh, as opposed to North Americans, mm-hmm. we could learn a thing or two from the Canadians. Yeah. Is there a downside of being nice? I, I can't think of one unless it's, unless well, it's Well, I mean, of... it, you, yeah, if you, if you allow yourself to be trampled on, I suppose that would be a downside. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it was, it was Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, who once described Canada as the, I think he said the fly on the elephant, you know, when the elephant moves and the fly is, is disturbed greatly. So they're always in a, in an uncomfortable a position with the U.S. And right. I think that's where the the fear of being overly nice and, and take it for granted, I think that comes yeah. into play. NPR correspondent Eric Weiner is the author of The Geography of Genius and The Geography of Bliss. And he contributes a monthly column on the places that change you for the BBC Travel website. He's joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves for a look at what it is about our cordial next-door neighbors to the north, Canada, that keeps him going back year after year. 
And Eric, we've been talking about all this niceness in Canada. Well, we've got nine years of Stephen Harper that, as prime minister, they just came to a, a close, and now we've got uh, Justin Trudeau. Any thoughts on the Harper years and the Canadian sort of uh, image and how that might change with Justin Trudeau? I think the Canadian image abroad certainly is going to improve under Justin Trudeau because Stephen Harper, whatever his relative merits uh, as a prime minister, was an extremely boring man, is an extremely boring Mm -hmm. man, Mm -hmm. and uh, deadly dull. Even his name is a bit dull, frankly. And Justin Trudeau has a lot of his father, Pierre Trudeau's charisma. Uh, I think he's going to make an excellent bilingual spokesman for Canada. So I think under a Trudeau premiership, Canada is going to be a lot more interesting. Uh, The question is whether the country can be more interesting Mm. and remain just as nice as it has always been. Another big dynamic on the planet in the last generation is, of course, uh, the rise of globalization. I've seen how that's impacted uh, a lot of the, the softer edges of European cultures. How is Canada dealing with globalization, and, and how do you see that threatening the Canadian niceness? Well, I think, you know, Canada's always had a difficult time distinguishing itself from the U.S. and from other countries. And I think what you've seen in Europe, I think, is taking place in Canada in a similar fashion, to be honest. The world is becoming a bit more homogenized overall. Faster paced and more aggressive, would you say? Faster paced, more more Western, mm-hmm. uh, but you also see backlashes against this. You see it in terms of the, the slow food movement and now just the slow movement that uh, began in France, actually, I believe. And you see it uh, in terms of countries that are asserting their language. Countries like Kazakhstan, where since the breakup of the Soviet Union, they're an independent country. The Kazakh language had fallen out of favor. Now, all of a sudden... You are required to speak, read, and write Kazakh in order to get a government job instead of wow. Russian. So it's a trend, but it's not a straight line, to, mm-hmm. uh, this trend and toward that's homogenization. A, that's an interesting point about the small languages and the, and the regions getting a little more um, confident and vociferous. Uh, in Europe, I know the small languages are more widely spoken this generation than last generation, which is kind of counterintuitive when you think of the forces of globalization and, and big. In Canada, how is the French-Canadian uh, uh dimension of that country faring with globalization and uh, what's been going on north of the border? Well, I think they have successfully maintained a distinct Quebecois uh, culture, not political independence. Uh, That that question has been settled, at least for the time being. Mm -hmm. But if you cross, you know, from uh, Ontario into Quebec, you'd notice that you have crossed a definite border, not an international border, not quite, but definitely a cultural border and perhaps the Quebecois are, are less nice than the than the Anglo Canadians, but they are interesting. They speak French, but they are not French. And to be honest, I hope I don't offend I don't know if I'm going to offend everyone here, but I think uh-huh. they are uh, a bit more approachable than certainly than the Parisians. They have this combination of elegance and a kind of down-to-earthness okay. at the same time in Quebec, which, so I, kind which of mix, I love. Yeah, you mix the, the beautiful things and the exasperated things Yeah, it has sort of the, the culture. elegance of France, but yeah. it's in Canada. So there's, you know, it's <laughs> snowmobiling and it's ice hockey and this kind of rough-and-tumble yeah. world. And it's, in a way, I think it's the best of both worlds. Maybe it's I know tempered the by that English niceness. The English niceness and the cold weather, the harshness, the proximity to America. I mean, all these go into making a culture. Geography matters. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Geography does matter. We're talking with Eric Weiner, who's written books about that. His book, uh, The Geography of Bliss, and his new book, The Geography of Genius. 
Eric's monthly column in BBC Travel is called The Places That Change You. Eric, uh, let's just finish off with some uh, travel tips. You go up there every year. You're a traveler who's been all over the world. Let's say you got a free weekend just to have a getaway. Where would you go in Canada and what would you do? Hmm. I mean, I'm a big fan of a place called the Eastern Townships in Quebec. It's a cluster of villages and small cities and beautiful lakes. And it is, you know, it's just in, what, an hour, hour and a half north of the U.S. border. And it is amazing. It is the French culture. It is great outdoors, great cycling. You can get French meals. I mean, basically, I think of it as driving to France every summer when I go up there. Small town France, even. Yes, I'm driving to small town France without getting wet, you know, crossing the Atlantic. And that's that's one of my uh, favorite places. It's called the yes. what, what the townships or what's the, the name? Eastern Townships, the Eastern Townships of Quebec in Quebec. Nice idea, Eric Weiner. Thanks so much, and best wishes with your writing and your travels, and enjoy your next trip to Canada. Thank you. Have a have a nice day. <laughs> From bitter searching of the heart, we ran we to play a greater part. Up next, Simon Winchester examines what contributes to a tense climate between superpowers on the Pacific Rim. And later in the hour, we'll find out how a small country wedged between the Adriatic and the Alps has become one of Europe's most relaxing destinations. It's an insider's guide to summer in Slovenia, coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Watashiwa, David Sedaris. Riku, Steve to Tokyo e ikitai desu. <laughs> What's that? I want to go to Tokyo with Rick Steves. Ooh, say it again. Riku, Steve to Tokyo e ikitai desu. Domo arigato. Dou itashimashite. When best-selling author Simon Winchester tackles the history of the Pacific Ocean, the result is a highly entertaining biography of the world's largest sea. His travels took him from the Bering Strait to Cape Horn and to countries and islands all around the Pacific Rim to uncover the ocean's stories and the troubles brewing both above and below the surface. In his latest book, Pacific, Simon encounters the navigational expertise of Polynesian voyagers. He examines the fallout of nuclear testing, the transistor revolution Japan gave us, and even how the Gidget movies of the 1960s helped introduce surfing to the world. But what about the 21st century? News from the South China Sea suggests that a conflict over territory between trading partners might be just over the horizon. Simon Winchester joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about the ascendancy of the Pacific region and how it will define our future. Simon, thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Simon, a big part of your book is how East meets West, and that involves China, an emerging superpower, and, of course, America. What did you learn about this new dynamic when researching your book on the Pacific about East meets West? Well, apart from the sort of the basic philosophical question of how fascinating it is that when the two great civilizations diverged from Africa, what, 120,000 years ago, and one group went to Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley and Peking and became the Eastern world, and one other group went through the Balkans and up to Europe and became the Western world. Now, in the Pacific, these two groups have finally confronted one another, and they did so when Magellan first arrived in the ocean in the 16th century. And ever since then, there's been 
Western colonization, American colonization, German, French, British colonization. And, and the relationship between East and West hasn't been tremendously smooth. Most of these imperial powers have now retreated. The British have only got Pitcairn left. And the Americans, of course, left Indochina. And the Germans have left and the Japanese retreated back to Tokyo after the Second World War. Only the French really remain in French Polynesia. So the Pacific, in a sense, is standing on its own, with one single exception, that the Americans have regarded the Pacific since the end of the Second World War as essentially a gigantic American lake. And the belief is that from Pearl Harbor and San Diego and the bases in Japan, America patrols and polices the whole of the ocean and for the greater good of the world. I mean, that is the belief. If you go to the Pentagon and sit down with the admirals, they will show you pictures of Seoul in 1945 and Seoul today. They'll show you Beijing in 1945, Beijing today. They'll show you Tokyo in 1945, Tokyo today. And in all cases, you'll see on the one hand, ruin, and on the second, huge neon buildings and, uh, and skyscrapers and prosperity. The Americans will say, it's because of our Navy, because of protecting the sea lanes of the Pacific, that so much of the Pacific is so prosperous today. That is their argument. However, that argument is now being challenged. And it began to be challenged in a rather peculiar way in 1991-92, when it seems unrelated, but it's not, I would argue, a gigantic volcano erupted in the Philippines, Mount Pinatubo. And it was an eruption that I covered. And that eruption caused two huge nearby American military bases, Subic Bay Naval Base and Clark Air Base, to be covered with ash and closed down. Dick Cheney, who was then the Secretary of Defense, closed these bases down. And the consequence of that was that the South China Sea, which is to the west of the Philippines, uh, became a military vacuum. There were no air patrols by the Americans, there were no naval patrols by the U.S. Navy, because their bases had closed down. And, of course, nature and the military abhors a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And who moved to fill this vacuum but the Chinese? And the Chinese, very surreptitiously, began creating out of the little coral islands that dot the South China Sea a huge number of bases, small little docking stations for ships or little runways for aircraft, lighthouses, radar stations. And then the Pentagon did nothing about it until about three or four years ago, when they woke up and said, my gosh, the South China Sea has been turned into a Chinese lake. And the corollary, the unpleasant corollary of this came in 2006, relatively recently, when a American aircraft carrier, the Kitty Hawk, was on patrol near the South China Sea. And suddenly, to everyone's astonishment, a Chinese attack submarine surfaced about five miles away from the carrier and it had been shadowing the carrier, it turns out, for some while, and could have easily, had it had hostile intent, put two torpedoes into the carrier, probably capsized it, and probably killed 5,000 American sailors. So all of a sudden, the admirals got nervous and said, we've thought of the Pacific as being an American lake, and the Chinese are beginning to expand into it. And they started in the South China Sea, now they're coming into the Philippine Sea, the Sea of Japan, we should be worried. And so that's the situation at the moment. The Pentagon, the hawks in the Pentagon are saying, we've got to spend more money and put new carrier groups in. The Chinese say, we mean no harm. Hmm. We simply don't think it's right that the Americans should regard this as a monopoly. We think the ocean is open to all, and that includes us. But it's a, 
a big dilemma going on at the moment. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Simon Winchester. His book is Pacific, and it talks about many dimensions of the biggest body of water on this planet, including the growing face-off between the world's two top military powers. So, Simon, for 20 years, the Chinese have had this vision, and they've been working quietly on it, and and apparently just now we're waking up to that. Isn't it natural that uh, a growing power, a growing economy, and a growing military like China would would wake up and think that that is every right to be their territory as well as America might want it? I think you're absolutely right. And this all goes, the strategy goes beyond what I've just described. It was all devised by an admiral who died a few years ago, a Chinese admiral called Liu Huaqing. Admiral Liu, oddly enough, I mean, a very fiercely nationalistic man, happened to be the commander of all forces involved in the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. So he's not a popular figure in the West He devised a a naval strategy for China, which began with what's occurred in the South China Sea, but it has three more elements to it. They have devised these imaginary bastions, if you like, extending out from the China coast into the middle of the ocean, and they're called the first, second, and third island chains. The first island chains is a sort of imaginary line which goes from Japan down towards Indonesia. The second island chain, out a bit further, goes from Kamchatka in eastern Russia down to the northeastern tip of Australia, Cape York. And the third island chain goes from the Aleutian Islands down through Hawaii to New Zealand. And the Chinese intention is that by 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the PRC, of the People's Republic of China, that the Chinese Navy will be able to operate beyond the first, beyond the second, and right up to the third island chain. And already it's starting. Within the first island chain, the one, to remind you, from Japan to Indonesia, there's a huge amount of Chinese military activity. They've deployed lately their first ever aircraft carrier, which is a former Ukrainian vessel called the Liaoning. And they're building four more, which are currently on the stocks in Manchuria, in the shipyards up near Dalian. And their intention is that they're now within the first island chain, By 2020 or so, they'll be operating within the second island chain in places like the Coral Sea and Tonga and Fiji. And by 2049, they'll be operating within the third island chain. And that has the symbolic alarming reality, as far as the Americans are concerned, that a Chinese carrier strike force can be exercising off Pearl Harbor. And that gives the American Navy the shudders. Uh, Because why, in their view, should they be allowed to do such a thing? My view, as yours seems to be too, is why not? If they have no territorial ambitions, why shouldn't the Chinese be able to operate with impunity in the Pacific Ocean wherever they like and whenever they like? And out of their own self-respect, they're going to probably insist on that. Well, they are. And it's uh, the big question now is whether the Americans will try to stop them doing such a thing. If they are going to try, this would be the moment early on when the Chinese Navy is Mm. inferior to the American Navy. But in another couple of years, there will be actual equivalents of the amount of tonnages of ships. The missiles that the Chinese are developing, there's one particularly an anxiety-causing weapon called, I think it's called the Dongfeng-3, the East Wind-3, which is known as a carrier killer, a missile which can be fired from eastern China and can take out an American aircraft carrier like the USS George Washington, which is the one that's deployed with the 7th Carrier Strike Group at the moment. 
And how do you interdict and possibly stop that? They only saw it for the first time where there was this gigantic military parade in Beijing and the admirals had a good look at this new weapon. But I know we're talking about weaponry and and steel and, and nastiness. My belief, however, is that the Chinese mean no ill will whatsoever, that they're just um, saying we want equivalence, that's all. We want respect. And I would think they're guarding their trade routes because they need to be able to rely on that and, and they don't want to lead that into somebody else's control. Well, and that somebody else, of course, would be would the be United us. States. Yeah. And the United States has had no ill intent in the last uh, 50 years to inhibit trade. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Simon Winchester. His new book is Pacific. And uh, Simon, the subtitle of your book is Silicon Chips and Surfboards, Coral Reefs and Atom Bombs, Brutal Dictators, Fading Empires, and the Coming Collision of the World's Superpowers. And you write about the ascendancy of the Pacific region. When you talk about the ascendancy of the Pacific region, is that basically the ascendancy of China as an emerging economic and military superpower? Not really. I think it's also to do with the immense and still ever-increasing amount of trade that's coming from East Asia uh, to the ports of North America, largely, and which was triggered in, what, 1955 by the invention of the first ever Sony transistor radio Mm. and the consequent or the coincident invention in the Atlantic, it has to be said, of the shipping container. All of a sudden, container ships began to be built largely in the shipyards in Korea and Japan, bringing these radios Mm. and then Walkman and then Trinitrons and then Betamaxes and all the other good stuff and then Panasonic and Samsung and all the other companies. And when you stand on the Golden Gate Bridge and and look at these huge evergreen container ships churning in as they do ceaselessly to the ports in Oakland and so forth, bringing new goods, you realize that the pattern of trade in the Pacific is gigantic, relentless, and largely from west to east. And that that trade, one might say, has been protected, this is what the admirals will say, by the patrolling of American warships who have kept Mm -hmm. any threat to these shipping lanes you know, far distant. Whether that's going to change, whether when the Chinese Navy has equivalents in patrolling the shipping lanes, I don't know. To me, it doesn't look in any way sinister, mm-hmm. but a lot of hawkish people in the United States think it is and think that things are about to change. If you looked at a chart that measured the uh, the relative amount of trade between the Atlantic and the Pacific, I would imagine the Pacific has more trade now than the Atlantic. How, how would they compare? Oh, it does. And certainly the same is true about airline traffic now. It used to be the, you know, New York-London was the big route mm-hmm. with most planes, but now the Trans-Pacific routes, uh, you know, you look Tokyo to Vancouver, Tokyo to Los Angeles and San Francisco and Seattle, hugely populated by aircraft. Now they, they, you look at the black lines of representing both ships and aircraft, and the Pacific is as crowded as a space as big as the Pacific can possibly be. So I have a rather facetious dream that the international date line, which makes it very inconvenient for people trading in San Francisco on a Friday because it's Saturday and everything is closed in Tokyo, would it not be better if the international date line was now moved into the Atlantic Ocean and that there was no date line separating? So when it's Friday in uh, San Francisco, it'll be Friday in Japan. Uh, That'll never happen, of course. But that would be the uh, ultimate triumph for the Pacific in that head-to-head combat with the Atlantic, wouldn't it, to move the international dateline? Precisely. I'd like to see. And moreover, the international dateline in the Atlantic could be more or less straight, whereas the one in the Pacific, because of all the islands, has to zigzag past the Aleutians. Wow. Now, that's a concept. That would be the measure of of an ascendant ocean. Simon Winchester follows up his epic biography of the Atlantic with his latest book called Pacific. In it, 
He explores colorful stories from the Pacific region and how its inhabitants are transforming our world. Pacific is scheduled to be released in paperback this October. There's more on his website. That's simonwinchester.com. And Simon, we've been talking about modern problems and challenges and so on, but reading through your book, it's clear you have a respect for the wisdom of the uh, ancient cultures uh, of, of the Pacific. Let's just close this conversation with a thought, perhaps on on what the Pacific and its ancient cultures can teach us and, and how that might be the takeaway for your book. Well, the great triangle between Hawaii in the north and Easter Island in the east and uh, New Zealand, or Aotearoa as it's known, in the Western Pacific, that's Polynesia. And for thousands of years, the Polynesians navigated in their canoes as they wished between the various islands. And even though they might have been thousands of miles apart, they got there very expeditiously because they knew how to navigate without instruments. But then we Westerners came along and said, this part of Polynesia is British and that part is French and that part is German and that part's American. And all of a sudden, these travelers had to navigate and get passports because they were moving from one zone of influence to another. And they'd never had passports. They didn't know how to read or write. They couldn't fill in the application forms. And so this skill of what's known as non-instrumental navigation died. And there was only one man in 1976, a man called Mao Piaulug, who knew how to do it. And he lived on an island called Satawal in the Caroline Islands. And so in 1976, the Hawaiians built a canoe, 60-foot-long sailing canoe called Hokulea, which is the Hawaiian word for Arcturus, the great star. And they brought Mao Pialug up to Hawaii and said, teach our people how to navigate without instruments. And he taught them, and they set off with him lying in a hammock in the back between the sailing sweeps. And he said it'll take six weeks to get to Tahiti from Honolulu, two and a half thousand miles, without instruments. And they got there precisely on time. They raised the island just as he predicted, and they realized they could do it. Well, that was in 1976. In 2014, the Hokulea, this now venerable old boat, with 300 people in Hawaii now knowing how to navigate non-instrumentally, has been setting off to travel around the world. And she's making it for the coast of Africa, to uh, the Atlantic, and she'll sail up the Potomac. She hopes in by October and greet, these are all Hawaiians, they'll greet their Hawaiian president, President Obama, and then they'll set off down the east coast of South America, through the Straits of Magellan, back into the Pacific, back home, and back up to Hawaii. It'll take them four years, and we who learn about this will do something about the Polynesians that we've never really done before. We'll come to respect them and learn from them, because they are remarkable people. That's the takeaway that I'd like people to take from this book, that the ocean is a place not to be disdained and polluted and colonized, but loved, learned from, and respected. That's a beautiful sentiment. Simon Winchester, thank you for, first of all, for your book on the Atlantic, which was fascinating, and your new book, Pacific. Thank you very much. the crowds of summer tend to put too much of a strain on enjoying your vacation, we've got insider advice for a getaway to one of Europe's smaller countries where you can explore spectacular caves, scenic lakes, and alpine peaks all in the same day 
without a lot of crowds. We'll take your calls at 877-333-7425 as we look at summer in Slovenia. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. I've never met anyone who's been to Slovenia and didn't wish they'd given themselves a little more time to enjoy visiting this small and often overlooked country. It's where the Slavic, German, and Italian worlds mingle, and it's an easy trip from Venice, Munich, or Vienna. A trip to Slovenia also promises to be a relaxing alternative to the summer heat and crowds that you usually find this time of year in the Mediterranean. Joining us to take your calls at 877-333-7425 are Slovenian guides Anja Kuznar and Tina Hiti. Tina lives in the popular Lake Bled region, and Anja comes from a scenic town with an unusual-sounding name, Patui. Tina and Anja, welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Tina, Slovenia is kind of a mystery to most travelers. There's Slovenia, Slovakia, Slavonia. It's, uh, people don't even know where it is on the map. Describe your country. So, Slovenia is a tiny little country, actually in the middle of Europe. And it has only two million people. And it's about a two hour and a half driving away from Venice, which is a good detour if you want to have a little break from that. And it's a small country. So, it's the size of New Jersey. So, pretty much you don't need a lot of time to visit it. How much coastline is there on the Mediterranean? Um, altogether, 26 miles. 26 yes. miles. How many people in the country? Two million. But it's a problem. We all want to go there in the summer. So everybody's going to that yeah, little about, tiny stretch. About an inch per, <laughs> per inhabitant. <laughs> One inch like that. per Slovenia yeah. of Mediterranean yeah. coastline. Anya, if somebody's going to Slovenia, you're a tour guide. You take foreigners around your country. What are the top four or five stops for a tourist in Slovenia? If you want to see Slovenia in a snapshot, I would definitely recommend you to stay in Ljubljana, which is the capital city. Mm -hmm. Then I would recommend you to stop in Ptui, which is my hometown, about 100 miles east from Mm -hmm. Ljubljana. I would recommend you to stay in Lake Bled area, which is the most famous mountain resort in our country, and visit the underground caves of Postojna and Škotjan on the way to the coast. So Lake Bled is the, the postcard image of Slovenia. We, many of us have seen this amazing mountain lake with a castle on the hill next to it and a, a cute little island and a church on the island and traditional boats going out to the island. Exactly. I re- even remember a picture of Rick Steves uh, bringing the boat to the island That's himself. one of my favorite things to do uh, is <laughs> to take groups. There. Not one of my favorite things to do is to, is to work that boat because what is the boat called? The boat is called Pletna boat. It comes from German Platten boat because it means that the bottom is flat. Maybe that's part of the problem because there was a very friendly Pletna boat driver that let me push the oars. And there's, what is it? There's two oars mm-hmm. and I could not, all I could do was go in circles. You know, that means that you have to come back and practice some more. Okay, I'll take that as a nice invitation. And when we're thinking of Slovenia, if we go there in the summer, we can hit lots of festivals. So I'd like to just kind of review the the festival opportunities when we're in Slovenia. And let's just talk about some of your favorites. Uh, Tina, what is a festival that, that you would be sure that we know about? I would say in Slovenia throughout the summer, there's some really cool food festivals. One of my favorite ones is actually, it's so-called an open kitchen and it started just as an idea where basically the restaurants of the main city of the capital city of Ljubljana decided to have small stalls in the town on the main square and offer their specialties over there. Because sometimes you cannot go into the five-star restaurant because it's just too pricey. But in that way, you bring it to the locals as so well. So this is the, the taste and of you the give, town, really. And you give it the opportunity. And then they have the open kitchen that it's actually 
beer and burgers, and you have a lot of microbreweries that are right now very in in our country, and they try to make the best burgers. Maybe it's not so appealing to you since you are the country of burgers, but we do pretty good ones as well. <laughs> okay, so this is yeah. a, a food festival, an open festival. kitchen in the summer, yeah. in the capital yeah. city of Ljubljana. In the Ljubljana. capital city of Ljubljana. And Anya, uh, you're from Patui. What, what kind of a festival might be in Patui? That, by the way, is spelled P-T-U-J. Yes. Well, in summer, I would definitely go for, for a good beer. So I would uh, visit the festival called the Festival of Flowers and Beer in a place called Lashko. That's an open-air event that kind of reminds me of the um, German Oktoberfest in Munich. Ah. So um, mm-hmm. you could toast with friendly locals and maybe even polka. And what is the name of that festival again? This is called Pivo in Svetia, Beer and Flowers. Beer and Flowers. All right. In the town called Lashko. Okay. You can reach it by bus, by train, and... Now, there's a, another festival there. actually in your town called the Days of Poetry and Wine. What is mm-hmm. that like? That's another event where you can um, stay outdoors, listen to the poetry, and the idea is to invite poets from all over the world to meet in Ptui and read their poetry in their mother tongue. And that's also translated into English language. So with a glass of wine, you can follow and understand what that's all about. So you could be in Petui in Slovenia, yes. enjoying all of the literature, speaking only English even. Yes. Nice. Now, Tina, to me, the most rugged and beautiful natural sites are above Lake Bled. There's a, a resort lake or a, a national park lake, Bohin. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would I connect with culture and traditions in that region? Well, that is a definitely a very traditional setting. And they also do three festivals throughout the summer that are connected with the traditions in the region. The first one is actually the rustic wedding that is in combined with the Midsummer Festival. And this is basically to greet the summer coming into those places because these places are all located in deep valleys where sun doesn't necessarily rise all year long. The sun is not present and they are so happy that they have it. And it's just a very nice gathering of different traditional things that they do, you know, from habits to getting married in the old-fashioned way, even choosing couples that will marry and pay for the entire wedding. Is that right? So this is a, called a rustic yes. wedding, but being yes. old, an old-fashioned yes. wedding, a traditional wedding. But what I would say my favorite festival in Bochin Valley is definitely the one that comes in the beginning of fall, in early September. This is a big shepherd's area, so they still bring cows up to the high pastures. And when the cows are returning back from the pastures down to the valley, they actually call the festival the Cow's Ball. Everybody's happy because the cows are back in town. So they're bringing the cows down. They've had a good summer. Yes, they had a good summer. And then they actually choose miss of cows because they just want to have a sense which cow produced the most milk, did the best cheese. and Wow, that you know, sounds it's, like it's a, a great festival. Because I know in yeah. Switzerland when that happens, yeah. it's a spontaneous festival. But in yeah. Switzerland, they don't even know the day the shepherds yeah. are going to bring down the animals. But in Yeah, Slovenia, here usually it happens every the second or the third weekend okay. in September. And there's a lot of shepherd competitions as well. So the, the shepherds ball. are competing. Yeah. So if we're heading off ball. to Slovenia in September, look up the cow's ball up in Bohin region above Lake Bled. You mentioned in Bohin there's a, a midsummer festival. Now, I thought of midsummer as uh, something they celebrated up in Scandinavia, but they actually celebrate mm-hmm. midsummer. How would, how would a Slovenian celebrate midsummer's eve? Well, usually with fireworks. And we're just happy that the summer finally arrived and that we can just relax and take it easy. 
Not that we are not taking it easy throughout the year, but it's just that marking. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tina Hiti and Anja Tsuznar about summertime in Slovenia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Marty's calling in from Atlanta in Georgia. Marty, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, everyone. I am excited. I'm going to be going to Slovenia this summer, and I'm trying to figure out where the best home base would be. I'm actually going to be traveling from Zagreb up to Munich, and I thought about Lake Glad, and I'm fascinated with the Julian Alps, but I don't want to miss Ljubljana either. So I'd love any advice that you may have for me. And how many days would you have for Slovenia? I possibly could do four. Four days. Anya, what would you recommend? I would recommend staying in Ljubljana for two nights, doing some side trips, maybe visit the caves, karstic area, and then head to Lake Blad, where you could do some hiking, visit the gorge of Vindgar, which is our version of Grand Canyon. Mm. Mm. Maybe visit another lake, which is uh, Lake Bohin, only 15 miles away from right. Lake Blad. So, Marty, you would have one day to see the, the sites of the capital city and one day to take a side trip out and see the famous caves. And then you'd head up into the high country, and that would be into the national park. And if you're fascinated by the Julian Alps, Tina, I know you live up there. Where would you go to enjoy the Alps of Slovenia? Because a lot of people think Alps, oh, must be Switzerland or Austria. Yes. But no, there are great mountains in Slovenia. Well, I would say probably the nicest part of our country is actually if you make a drive from Kranska Gora up Vršić Pass. It's a famous pass with about 50 harpin turns. So wait a second. Now the name of uh, the, the pass is called? Vršić. This is one of these uh, Slovenian words. Yes, Vršić. So Vršić. Vršić. V-R-S-I-C with hooks above S and C. So Lots of Vršič. hooks on those letters. But basically, yes. Marty, it's the one uh, main road over the mountains with like how many switchbacks? It's about 50 hairpin turns, yeah. 50 hairpin turns. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love driving but, that way. <laughs> but you really come, you know, up close and personal with the Alps. I love that. And then yeah. you drive down to the Trenta Valley and you see the Socha River, which is actually emerald color and it's just breathtaking how beautiful it is. It's also connected with history a lot. So a lot of First World War battles took place over there. But it's just a combination of beautiful natural sites mm. and historical background. It's just mm. incredible. And don't forget also the food. So when you'll be in Slovenia, try some delicious wines and foods. It's just incredible. Marty, there's oh, some good uh, ideas for you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, have a great time. Thanks, I will. Bye-bye now. Bye. The northwest corner of the former Yugoslavia is where you'll find Slovenia. It's wedged between Croatia, Italy, and Austria. And it's our destination right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by local guides Anja Kuznar and Tina Hiti for a look at what they recommend to enjoy a relaxing summer getaway in their own home country. And Bill's calling from Holland in Michigan. Bill, are you planning a trip to former Yugoslavia? Uh, we are. Thank you very much for taking my call. just want to comment. Several years ago, our children gave my wife a T-shirt on which they inscribed, Follow me, I follow Rick Steves. So we are going to be following you, uh, Rick, this summer, going to Croatia and Slovenia. And uh, the question my wife and I have is, with the refugee situation, are there any concerns that we should have? 
Okay, this is a very, uh, there's a lot of Americans that are a little bit anxious or nervous about traveling when we see all of these desperate refugees going through Europe. And I'm wondering from the perspective of both of our tour guides here, is there any safety concerns an American traveler should have if they're in former Yugoslavia considering the refugee crisis? Anya? No, I would say it's a very safe place to travel to. Each European country has its own uh, system of taking care of the refugees. Usually Mm -hmm. the refugees enter with buses, Mm -hmm. cross the border, and then the other country takes over and transports refugees by train or by buses, so we literally don't see them. Mm-hmm. Then when they reach the border with another neighboring country, the another country takes care of them. So safety, it's not an issue. And in former Yugoslavia, if there are refugees, they're just passing through to get to yes, Germany or, exactly. or England yes. or Scandinavia, countries that can it's use the workers and so transit on. Transit. Hey, Bill, I'm, I'm curious because uh, a lot of people have expressed this same concern. In what way do you think a refugee situation might concern your safety, your physical safety? Uh, Thank you. We really are not concerned about our physical safety. We were concerned about uh, delays that we might encounter. Uh, We're going to be using public transportation for a number of our uh, connections in Slovenia. So we were concerned about, you know, delays and inconveniences more so than uh, personal safety. Because I do hear people, you know, because this is a time when there's some anxiety in the air and there's terrorism and there's refugees and all of this. And I can understand somebody worrying about their personal safety from a terrorism point of view. And we could talk about confusing risk and fear. But uh, from a refugee point of view, there's no logical connection with your, your safety and refugees there is a logical concern about just the inconvenience of they're filling up the train and I can't get on this train. And uh, I would suppose at worst you might have a little inconvenience because of that. It's in the news, and it's a horrible thing if you're, you know, dislocated from Mm -hmm. your country and desperate person looking for a safe place to live. But from a traveler's point of view, I I think there is, uh, at worst, you might be a little inconvenienced, but that would be very, very, very rare. And if it happened, I think it would just give you a, a little bit of an insight into what's going on in the world. And yeah. Tina, what do you think? If I may add, a lot of the transportation of the refugees is actually um, happening organized. So it's not really that they are using public transportation. They are having special trains for transporting them from one part of the country mm-hmm. to the other. Same with the buses. So it's not like the trains. It was just at the beginning because it was such a Big number, and it was a surprise. And now when they got it figured out, it's actually really no problem at all. I go to work every now and then. I drive to Ljubljana, and I would see a bus which is escorted by the police car in front and in the back, and mm-hmm. you only know what it is, what it is, but you don't really see them walking around the streets. That okay. is interesting that the yeah. news that we saw was when Europe was blindsided by this, and, yeah. and now it's uh, it's organized better, yeah. for the, better for the refugees yes. and, and better for the locals and the travelers. Yes. Hey, Bill, thanks for your call. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for taking my call. Okay. Have a good trip. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. This has been so much fun talking about Slovenia in the summer. And uh, let's just finish, uh, Tina and Anya. If you could give our listeners just uh, a little greetings that you might offer them in uh, your language, Slovenian first, and then translate it into English. Anya? Uh, so in Slovenian, I would say, Dobrodošli u Sloveniji, strani Alp. Welcome to Slovenia on the sunny side of the Alps. The sunny side of the Alps. And Tina Hiti. And I would say probably one of the most important greetings that you can do in Slovenian is oj. Oj comes from an old Slovenian word, osti and that actually means stay forever healthy and young. 
was that right? And it's as easy as oi. Oi, yeah. Stay and forever it's not, healthy, happy, and young. Yeah, just remember to say it lively because if you do oi, it's not good. You have to do oi. <laughs> Stay forever healthy and happy. Yes. No. Oi. And young. Oi. Oi. Yes, that's the one. And then thank you. Hvala lipa. Thank Hvala. you. Thank you very much. Slovenia, odkotle pote tvoje, pozdravljamo te iz srca, in srični tu smo doma. Slovenia, naj tebi pisem poje, ne išči sri, Like many German cities, Nuremberg was flattened during World War II, but rebuilt on the same footprint. That's because a city's subterranean infrastructure survives even the worst bombing. For a climb into that dark and mysterious world, I was joined by local guide Thomas Schmechtig. Together we ventured into Nuremberg's dark underground depths. Thomas gave me a tour of a Nazi bunker that was used to store stolen artwork and a peek at an even older water system used by the city. It was an unforgettable trip through layers of Nuremberg that would have been inaccessible without some local expert to open the doors and to guide me safely through. So that's one cellar. Which so where, where are we going? Now we go into old water conduit system. So if you close the door, this would be great. So we're going, this is, this is going from where the Nazis would hide the art. And now we go into an old water conduit system. If you follow me, you okay? Yeah, I'm a, little, I'm a little bit afraid. We are safe, I'm with you. This is the medieval water system? Yes, in a second, because I told you that the river was not drinking water. So um, water from outside was um, flowing down. Are you still okay with you? Have you got a torchlight? Or no, I'm following you in your okay, iPhone. Can I do it for you? All so right. if you don't worry about that one, let me see if I lift it up for you, because I forgot to switch on the light. Oh my goodness. What's down here? You see, I can, if you wait. Well, okay, uh, this is just, a, this is an example of how good it is to have a local guide <laughs> to understand underground Nuremberg. Underground Nuremberg. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Dana Bublitz and Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks for studio help this week to Darren Peck at Sports Byline USA in San Francisco and to our colleagues at NPR in Washington. You can listen again whenever you like and find guest information in the details for each week's show. Our radio page is updated weekly at ricksteves.com. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.